So if you are new and joining with us for the first time, we have been in a series looking together at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a little church in the city of Colossae in the first century. And actually, tonight is our last time in the book of Colossians for the next few months, uh, because next week is the beginning of Advent. And so I'm going to do a four-week series during Advent leading up to Christmas, and then in the new year, we're going to do a, a vision series to start off the year. I'm going to be uh, walking through some of the narratives surrounding Elisha and Elijah, and I love those stories. They're super cool, and so come in the new year, we're going to do that. And then about halfway through February, we're going to pick back up again in the book of Colossians and finish it off, uh, taking us through Easter. And so I know some of you are, are depressed by that because we've been in Colossians now for several months. You don't know who you're going to be anymore in your life. If you don't have Colossians, I don't know, maybe. All right, but let's pray together as we prepare to open up God's word. Father, we ask now that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, and that you would make us attentive to your voice, and that in attending to your voice, God, we might be changed and molded and shaped so that we can be your faithful people in this world. And so we ask, oh God, that you would come by your spirit and speak and change us. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. You know, sometimes you come to church and the topic is introduced and you wonder whether or not the topic is going to be applicable to you. And so, for example, maybe the pastor starts talking about marriage and you say, I'm single or I'm divorced or I'm widowed and this just doesn't apply to me. Or maybe the pastor is talking about parenting and you think, I don't have kids. Or uh, it seems to be addressed to somebody who's older and you feel younger. It's addressed to somebody who's younger and you feel older. Well, uh, tonight or uh, today, good news, uh, we are going to be talking together about something that is applicable to all of you right now because we're going to be talking together about what we are doing right in this moment. We're going to be talking together about corporate worship. In other words, what does the people of God do? What does the church do? What, is, what, what, what are we doing when we gather together like this? What is worship all about? And you know, I think the church has been asking this question afresh over the last few months. I can still remember, I think it was Friday the 13th in March, when I was debating uh, and the elders and I were going back and forth over texts and phone calls as to whether or not we should cancel our in-person services coming up on March 15th and then uh, just go to online. And at that point, uh, I, I thought, you know, that sounds so crazy. It's so bizarre. I can't imagine doing that. And now it seems like that's all we've been doing for the last several years, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like this just keeps going on and on. But I, I remember, too, when uh, we did cancel that first in-person service and we went online, uh, we had a lot of practical challenges that we were facing because we had never recorded one of our services uh, for broadcast before. We, have never, we had never done an online stream before. And so it was a huge logistical, practical challenge. And by God's grace, he provided incredible people like Dan Janetsky and Janet and Dwight Crumb. Can we give them a hand? They have just done a fabulous job just working so hard, uh, tuning, kind of like uh, fine-tuning our services each and every week. 
And so there was logistical and practical challenges. And then there was a lot of unknowns. We, we were asking the question, when will we be able to meet in person again? And I remember I thought, I, I don't know if we can wait all the way into April to Easter to meet again. But then I had in my imagination that come Easter 2020, we were going to meet again all in person uh, in our sanctuary. We're going to have a big in-person celebration. I don't know if anybody else was dreaming of that. And now I am praying by God's grace, we will be back in our sanctuary again in Easter of 2021. Can we claim that by faith? Amen. <laughs> but um, but so, so, so there were unknowns. And then, of course, there was just some theological and pastoral questions about what this was going to be like for God's people. How was it going to be for us to be worshiping apart in our living rooms and online? And then now, of course, we've got both and going. We've got our in-person thing out on the grass, socially distanced with masks. And then we've got the uh, online stream thing going. But it raised questions for us about worship. And I think churches all over the United States have been asking questions like, well, what is church going to be like when it goes back to normal? And how, ha how will this period where we have broken and where we've, we've kind of uh, mixed up what we had normally been doing. What's it going to be like when we come back and we worship together again? And will people come back to church was a big question that many churches have asked. And of course, it also raises questions about what actually is worship? What are the essentials of Christian worship? What must we do in order to be faithful as God's people to worship together? And so those are the questions we're going to be exploring together through God's word. Now, we're, we're looking at a text that really gives us a window into what worship was like in the first century church. You know, have you ever wondered that? What would it be like to go to church in the first century? Well, we get a little window into what church was like in the first century in this letter. He gives us a little window into uh, these early Christian worship services. And listen to what he says in verse 16. This is direct uh, instruction for their worship. He says, and let the peace of Christ, or let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see where it says dwell in you richly? Uh, that can actually be translated dwell among you all richly. This is not an individual command for an individual believer to, dwell, to, to let God's word dwell in their individual hearts, though that's an important practice. Instead, this is a call collectively to the people of God to allow God's word to dwell among you. And then listen to what he says. He continues on, as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, in this passage, we get a window into the essentials of what make up real corporate worship. Like, what is worship all about? What are we trying to do when we gather together? What is this time all about? And I want to explore what he says underneath three headings. Number one, I want us to see the fundamental principle of worship. Secondly, we'll see the joyful response in worship. And then finally, uh, we will talk about the open posture we must, we must bring into worship. But let's begin by talking about the fundamental principle in worship. Notice again what he says uh, back in verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Now, let's just stop there and ask this question. What is worship? If you were to ask me, what is worship in its essence? What is Christian worship all about? Here is how I'd answer it. Worship is our collective response to God's gracious word to us in Jesus Christ. 
Worship is our collective response, a response that we give sometimes through joyful praise and through fervent prayers and through obedient listening and through generous financial giving. Worship is our collective response we give to God's gracious word to us in Jesus Christ. Now, again, look back at the text, and let's kind of unpack this dense sort of fundamental definition of worship. He again says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another. He talks about singing with thankfulness in your hearts. And the thing that I want you to note here is that within worship, our response involves a lot of words. Our response to God involves words, words we sing, words we pray, words that are spoken to us and to, or words that are spoken to God, words that are sung to God, words that are spoken about God to each other. And if you just stop and think about over this weekend, how many words will be spoken or sung or prayed in corporate gatherings? all throughout the world, in different continents, in Latin America and in Africa and in Asia and uh, in Central America and, and over in Russia and in China and all of the, the words that will be spoken in these different continents and, and the words that will be spoken and sung and prayed in different languages, words that are spoken to God and about God. And so the, 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 the response that we give to God in worship involves so, so, so many words that are spoken and prayed and sung. But what's interesting in our text is that the fundamental, the primal, the very central word that is spoken in our corporate gatherings is not the word that any human speaks to God. It is the word that God speaks over us. Notice again in the text, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. And here is the fundamental principle, the fundamental movement in worship. It is the movement of God's gracious, loving word that is spoken over us in Jesus Christ. He refers here to the word of Christ, and almost certainly what he's referring to here is the word of the gospel, the good news the good news of God's victory over sin and death and darkness. The good news that after Christ was put in the tomb, on the third day, he rose physically and bodily from the grave. The good news that at the end of the day, it is not hate and violence, but love and God's grace that will ultimately win. The good news that one day, that coming in a day soon, there will be the ultimate cosmic transition of power. And that transition will be from the kingdoms of man to the kingdom of God and of his Christ. And on that day, the good news will spread throughout all creation and there will be no tears or crying or death for he will make everything resurrection new. This is the good news, he says, that is spoken over us. He says, let this good news dwell among you. And how is it that this good news dwells among us? Well, it dwells among us, maybe in the most obvious way, is through teaching and preaching. As somebody like myself gets up and speaks the word, my primary responsibility ultimately is not to provide a bunch of information to you that will fill your heads, but it is to bring this gracious word of God's love, 
that God is for you. He is eternally and unconditionally for you and not against you. And to speak this word over us, this is, it comes to us through teaching and through preaching. But it also comes to us in the mouth of our brothers and sisters. You know, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that sometimes the word of Christ in the mouth of my brother is stronger than the word of Christ in my own heart. Have you found that to be true? Sometimes you need somebody else to speak a good word over your life to make you feel the thrill of forgiveness and the release of bondage. And so the word comes to us through preaching and teaching. The word comes to us in the lips of our brothers and sisters. And then the word comes to us, he says, through our singing, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And if you notice how many of our songs are not so much us addressing words to God, much of our songs are about God's gracious work over us. Most of our songs are about God's amazing grace that saved a wretch like you and me, amen? And so corporate, the very fundamental movement in our corporate gatherings is God's word of grace to us and over us in Jesus Christ. This good news of the gospel that is to flood and to fill and to, to, to you know, inhabit this community gathering when we come together through our singing and through the words we speak to each other, through the words that are preached and prayed and, and, and through all that we're doing, we are to allow this good news to fill us. And then worship then is the response to this good news that is spoken over us. Now listen, this vision of worship, of a response to God's gracious word that is spoken over us was the direct opposite of how everybody in the ancient world in Paul's day would have thought about worship. You see, in the ancient world, the primary way in which they thought about worship was not about God graciously moving towards people. It was rather about people moving and bringing something to God. And throughout the ancient world, worship looks something like this. Uh, the worshiper would come, and they would come and approach the gods. And they would come to the gods because maybe they needed something from the gods. They wanted rain for their crops, or maybe they wanted a date or a mate, or they wanted revenge on their neighbor who had wronged them. And so they would go to the gods. And of course, the gods were kind of flighty. They were kind of angry. And so you would need to bring the gods something real good. You'd have, to, you'd have to provide a sacrifice that was costly, that was serious. Sometimes it would be an animal. In very terrible instances, it would be a child. And, and you would bring the gods something that, that told the gods you were serious. And, and your, your desire was to bring this to the gods in order to get the gods to give you what you wanted. And so the primal movement in the ancient world in worship was the movement of, of humanity to God, giving God some, pri some, some costly sacrifice in order to get God to give them what they wanted. Because in their imagination, you know, God was basically, he was like a giant genie in the sky. He was, uh, you know, the sugar daddy in the sky. And so you try to twist his arm and try to get him to give you what you wanted. 
But Paul comes in and he introduces this radically different idea of worship. He says, oh no, worship is not about humanity going to God and offering up some costly sacrifice to try to twist God's arm to get the gods to do what they wanted. Instead, worship was about God giving his most costly sacrifice so that he might be graciously for us and not against us. So that ultimately the fundamental in worship was about us responding to this gracious work of God on our behalf. And so Paul says, this is the first word that is spoken in a, in a corporate gathering. This is what moves us to worship. It is the word of Christ the good news of Christ among us that is taught and that is spoken on the lips of brothers and sisters and that is sung among us. This word as it inhabits us, as it, as it, as, as it dwells among us, it evokes a response to us of praise and of sacrifice and of giving back to God in response to his gracious movement toward us. You know, there's a simple word that sums up the very heart of Christian worship, and it is that simple word, grace. It is, it, worship is a response to God's grace. And so we gather not in order to get something from God. You know, I know sometimes, you know, in, in, our, in our imagination, we think, oh, I, I need God to do something for me. I need him to answer my prayers I need a better score on my test. I need to get into this university. I, I, I need a date. I need a mate. I need a child. I need to get rid of a child. I need, I need something. You know, but, but you go sometimes to worship thinking like, if I could just show God I'm serious enough, that I, I'm sacrificing enough, I can bend and twist his arm. That is a pagan view of worship. That is not the biblical vision of worship. According to scripture, biblical worship is a response to God's gracious word and initiative over our lives. Now that response takes many forms, but I want to highlight secondly, after we've looked now at the fundamental movement or the fundamental principle of worship, secondly, let's note the joyful response in our text. Of course, there are many ways in which we respond to God's gracious movement toward us, we can give sacrificially and financially into his work in the world. We can, we can uh, pray fervently. Uh, we can listen obediently. But the, the response that Paul highlights in our text is singing joyfully. Look at what he says back in the text again. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and then he says this, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making, or, uh, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He is calling us here to a response of singing. And notice, uh, you know, there's a variety of songs. He talks about psalms. And probably this is a reference to the biblical scriptures, the, the, the Psalter in the Old Testament. Sometimes in the ancient churches, they would chant through the Psalter. He also talks here about hymns. And no doubt these were new songs that were theologically rich, that were written by those early churches. 
You know, some of the examples that we have in the New Testament are earlier in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We just sang that one. And it's almost certainly the case that that was an early Christian hymn. Many people believe that Philippians 2 and John 1, 1 to 18 give us an insight into some of the songs that the early church would sing. And then he talks about spiritual songs. Now, I don't know what spiritual songs are. I don't know if maybe that's just the groans and the oohs and the ahs, you know? You know, some of those songs that have those parts. I, I don't know if that's kind of what he's talking about here. Uh, people don't exactly know. Uh, but I like to think of it as, uh, you know, you've got the hymns, the ancient hymns of the church that are shared by everybody that transcend the generations. And then there's the new songs that are being written today. And of course, the church needs both, right? We need the ancient hymns and we need the newer songs being written and we want to enrich our services together with both. Right. I can't, somebody was clapping out there. But you know, singing, it's interesting, it has been central to the biblical story. You know, in the beginning, when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and God said, let there be light, Job tells us that the angels sang for joy. And at the consummation of all things, we together will join in an eternal song from with, together with people from every tribe and nation and tongue and people. And in between the beginning and the end, God's people throughout the scriptures are commanded to sing and to make music. You know, in the Psalms, over a hundred times we are commanded to sing. Psalm 149 says, praise the Lord, make melody in your hearts. And it's not just in the Psalms, it's all over. You know, when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea and went to the other side, they sang and they made music. And when the temple was built and uh, when they went into battle and when they coronated David as king and when the ark was brought into Jerusalem, the children of Israel sang and they made music and they used lyres and cymbals and tambourines and shofars and electric guitars and bass and, and drums and harps and pipes. And uh, Israel's greatest leaders, Moses and David, were songwriters. You know, they had a trained choir and gifted musicians in the temple. And in the New Testament, on the night before Jesus was crucified, you know, one of the very last things he did with his disciples was he sang a hymn together with them. And so do you see singing is central. It's a central response of God's people to God and his glory and his grace among us. Now, why is singing so significant? I know some of you, you feel like you cannot hold a tune or you cannot carry a tune. Anybody out there? Some of you have been very grateful because uh, during COVID, you've been able to uh, sit quietly on your couch at home, and you can sing actually as loud as you want, and you're only bothering your spouse or your children. But you know, why is singing so central to the people of God? And I think for, for, for this reason, of course, is because song has power. Songs enable us to express praise and joy and grief when words alone don't seem to do the trick anymore. You know, as every lovesick teenager will tell you, there are times when only a song will do. You know, and he talks in our text about giving thanks in our hearts to God, and it's as if he imagines 
of the word of Christ dwelling among us and this gracious news of Christ going deep down in our hearts and and that seed of the gospel penetrating deep down in the very recesses of our hearts and then it beginning to grow and ultimately give expression in songs of praise and thanksgiving and adoration to God. Songs, of course, also have the power to educate and shape us as disciples of Jesus. And of course, so many of you know from your upbringing, the television shows that you watched growing up, you could repeat for me uh, those songs that were the beginning of those TV shows, Making Your Way in the World Today, Takes Everything You Got. Yes. There's a story of a lovely lady. Brady Bunch, come on, yeah. I won't keep going on, but we could, right? Different strokes takes. Um, I'll, I'll stop there. But you know, uh, of course, the, the marketers know the power of song. They keep these little jingles before us. And again, we could repeat all kinds of little jingles that we heard you know, uh, growing up with the products. And it's these meaningless, terrible songs, and sometimes you don't even know why. It's like in the middle of the night, just you have like the Trident commercial from your childhood pops into your head. You're like, what on earth is happening? But you know, songs do have this, this tendency to stick in us and shape us so that oftentimes it is in those most critical moments in our life in those spaces where we're walking through those deep valleys, that those songs come to us and they oftentimes carry us through the darkness. And songs have the power to complete our enjoyment of God. You know, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a lot about singing in the church. And one of the things that he said, uh, and maybe some of you have thought this, he said when he first became a Christian, he was always confused as to why it was that God demanded that he be praised. And he thought it seemed so egotistical and narcissistic and something that insecure people want is for somebody to praise them all the time. And he was like, why is God doing that? Why does God need my praise and worship? But the answer that C.S. Lewis came to, and I think that the Bible invites us to come to, is that ultimately worship isn't just simply about God. It's about you connecting with and enjoying God. And Lewis put it like this. He said, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And then he says this, it is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. And of course, it's true, right? You see a sunset and you're like, oh, that's amazing. And what do you want to do? You want to look over and say, isn't that incredible? Honey, girls, come look at the sunset. Look at that. Because the expression of praise of the sunset, it, it helps complete the joy of seeing it. And of course, if you're eating a delicious meal, you just want to look up, like, isn't this incredible? This steak, this salad, this bread, you know, oh, it's so good. You just want, it completes the enjoyment by, by praising it. And of course, a, a newborn baby comes into the world and you want to share that. You want to say, oh, isn't she incredible? You know, it's what caused Stevie Wonder to write that incredible song, uh, Isn't She Lovely? It was the birth of his daughter. You know, isn't she lovely? Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. But you see, he's like, look, come and, 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 
And this is what praise does. Is, 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 when, when we receive this gracious word from God about his victory in Jesus Christ, when we join our voices together and we speak to one another, sometimes in our songs, uh, calling each other to praise God, and we join our voices in praise to God, it not only expresses God's greatness, but it also helps complete our joy in his greatness. And so singing is the joyful response he calls us to here. After we've been transformed by this gracious word, it leads into this joyful response. But thirdly and finally, I want you to see that the worship that he envisions here not only invites us to receive God's gracious word and it to respond joyfully with song and praise, but it calls us, it invites us into worship every time we gather together as people who enter with an open posture before the face of God. Now, let me just talk to you very honestly for a minute about worship. You know, I, I think... Um, I don't know if anybody else has had a difficult time over the last few months during COVID with worship. Uh, you know, worshiping in front of a television set, you remember doing that? For those of you who are here, some of you are doing it right now. Singing songs in that space, it just doesn't do the trick. And of course, in this space, socially distanced with face masks, I've talked to people, they've said, I just don't want to go to church because I don't want to sit far apart from people with a face mask on. I just don't even want to do that, you know? Uh, to which I want to say, yeah, and some Christians were almost being, per, you know, being put to death for going to worship back and get over it and just come to church. No. I don't say that to those of you who are home, actually, and you are at home because, you know, you've got health reasons, stay home, please. But, but listen, this has been, it's been a challenging season, and, and sometimes worship can feel difficult on a great day when you can go into the sanctuary and it's full and the band is singing all the songs you like and the prayer that is led is rich, and it just it, it invites you to enter in, and the sermon is interesting and funny, and it's biblical, and it's challenging, and, and it, 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 it reminds you of God's... Even on the best of, of days, worship can sometimes be difficult, because every time to, I come to worship, I bring myself. And when I bring myself, I bring my insecurities, I bring my anxieties, I bring my concerns, I bring my worries, I bring all of the distractions, I bring my short attention span, I, I bring all of that into worship. And it gets in the way. And, 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 and those are things almost that I, I almost can't do without. There, there, are other, there are other things that actually I, I bring in. Sometimes I bring an incredibly critical posture. Oh my gosh, you are absolutely so beautiful. There's a beautiful little girl walking right now. For those of you who are at home, we, maybe you can catch it on camera. I don't know. But, um, but there's children walking around, and you get distracted. And, um, but, but then I, I've got this. Sometimes I, I come to church, and um, rather than coming like this, you know, you guys know how at the end of our service, sometimes we tell you all just to open your hands in a posture of receptivity. <laughs> But it's very often the case that I don't enter into corporate worship with a posture of receptivity. 
there was a season where I was preparing to write a dissertation on corporate worship, and I, uh, Alicia and I visited many, many, many churches, and I found myself walking into those spaces, not with an open hand ready to receive, but with a closed fist ready to critique. And some of you are critics. It's your spiritual gift. And so you come here and you're critical. You just can't help it. You've got this inner critic and you're critical of the people. They weren't friendly enough and the music, it wasn't good enough. And the sermon, it wasn't long enough. You wanted a longer sermon. <laughs> but you come here and your hands are closed. But I want you to see this simple little word in our text Notice where it begins. He says, let. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, this is something that you and I have to choose to allow to happen. In other words, when you come into gathering together for corporate worship, you need to come with a posture of letting God, opening yourself up to God, allowing God to break into your life and to speak to you and to work in your life and to draw you out of yourself and to address real issues in your life, you need to come with an open posture. You need to let this word of Christ break in. And, and I, know, I know sometimes if you come with an open posture, surprising things can happen, Right? And there are some of you, there was some point in, your, in the history of your life where you entered into maybe a corporate worship service and God broke an addiction in your life on that day. Or maybe he released a bitterness that had gripped your heart. Or, or maybe he spoke to you in such a way and you made a radical decision to alter your entire life because you opened yourself up to God. But you know, most of the time it doesn't happen like that, Right? It's kind of like, you know, sometimes you have those meals that change your life. You guys had a meal that changed your life? Freshly, just a perfectly cooked steak with a perfectly prepared chimichurri sauce over the steak with some freshly baked bread and maybe some roasted potatoes with olive oil and a little uh, sea salt and some herbs. Should we keep going on this? No, we're, we're Thank you. I'm hungry too. I'm just, you can tell. But you know, sometimes you have a meal that changed your life and sometimes, you know, it got a little bit burnt and uh, sometimes it just was a little bland and it wasn't that good. But either, either way, it provided nourishment to sustain you and to give health to your body. And when we gather together, we are invited here in this text to come and to allow God to break into our life, to come with an open hand and a posture of receptivity, and to ask that God would break into our life. And sometimes as we come in that way, it will be radical and transforming. And other times it may be a little bit, you know, the, the service may be a little burnt, or it may be a little bland, but nonetheless, it is God's sustenance and nourishment for your soul. And so we are invited here to enter in with an open posture. And, and here is, is the good news. As we come and we bring our anxiety and our shame 
and our fears and our worries, and we bring the real self, who you really are, and all. When you bring that into the presence of God as we gather together, all that you bring is met and it is overmatched by God's gracious word over your life. You know, I, I was remembering this week, and I'll close with this, an illustration that I remember somebody gave, it was probably like 25 years ago. And it must have either been a really powerful illustration or I just needed to hear it in the moment, but I still remember it. But he was, he was, he was preaching on this uh, text that said, where, God, where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. And he was comparing our sin to if you had a little match and you lit that match and you were holding that match and it represented your guilt and your sin and your shame. And he said, you can imagine that little match wondering whether or not anything can ever put out the sin and the shame and the guilt. And he said, he said God's grace is like an entire ocean. And he says, worrying about whether or not God is enough and his grace is enough to handle your fears and your anxieties and your worries and all of your insecurities and your guilt and your shame. Wondering whether or not God is enough is like wondering is about that it's like that match wondering whether or not the ocean is enough to quench the flame. And so this evening we gather together in the very presence of God's infinite and eternal ocean of love. God is here present in our midst. And so let's turn to him now and let's just ask that God would break in with his grace and he would work in our hearts and our lives. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we ask that as we have disciplined ourselves to practice regular worship, to come together and collectively respond to all of the good, gracious ways you reveal yourself to us. God, we ask that you would continue to meet us in this place. God, meet us in the teaching of your word. Meet us in our praying. Meet us in our confession. Meet us in our singing. God, meet us wherever we are at with your grace and take us to the place where you want us to be. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.